open up our Bibles to the Word of God in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll read the whole of this passage of the Word of God. First Peter 4, beginning at verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. As far we read the word of God, may God bless unto us that reading of his holy 
and inspired word. Our text is verses 17 and 18. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps the most striking and puzzling statement in our text is that statement in verse 18 that the righteous are scarcely saved. We need from the outset to understand exactly what that text, what that phrase in our text means. There are some who would interpret that phrase this way, that the righteous being scarcely saved refers to the fact that some of the righteous are barely saved. They are almost not saved. Some of them almost end up going to hell instead of going to heaven because they almost do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And you recognize, of course, immediately that that is the Arminian understanding of that phrase and the Arminian explanation. And the Arminian would say that there are the only reason that they are in the end saved is because someone was able to persuade them and to convince them to choose to be saved. That's not the meaning of our text. That's not what scarcely saved means. But those words scarcely saved mean instead literally this, saved with great difficulty saved with great difficulty. The text is not saying that the salvation of the righteous is doubtful. The text is not saying that there are some of the righteous, some of the elect, some of those who are ordained to eternal life whose salvation almost doesn't happen. That's not what the Word of God says. The righteous will be saved, every one of them. But the point of the text is that it is a most difficult and a most demanding work of God to save his people. We do well to face this question, beloved. How difficult do you think it is for God to save us? How much work is it for God to save you from your sin? How difficult is it for God to save you from eternity in hell? What does it take for God to preserve you in your salvation? What does it take for God to bring you safely to heaven? The text says the righteous are saved with 
great difficulty. Consider then with me this text under the theme, The Righteous Scarcely Saved. We'll notice, first of all, a difficult work to save. Secondly, God's use of judgments in his work of saving his people. And finally, the certain outcome. God's work of saving you and me is a difficult work. A difficult work from beginning to end. You and I can tend to think as reformed believers who confess the absolute sovereignty of God in our salvation that it's a very simple thing for God to save us. Easy. Nothing to it. After all, God is almighty and God can do whatever God pleases to do. And if God wills to save us, then it's very easy for God to save us, we are inclined to think. He can overcome all opposition that we might face him with, confront him with. No one is able to resist the mighty power of God. No one is able to get in the way of God when he wills to do something. No one is able to ruin the work that God does. If it were up to us, we would not be saved, but because it is the work of God, it doesn't take much effort at all for God to save us. I say again, that's what we sometimes think. But that's not right to think that way. We might also think it's a very simple thing for God to save us because we're, we imagine that we are very easy candidates, as it were, for God to save. Especially compared to those whom God does not save. Easy for God to save us because we're not, and we really, really we've never, never have been, all that evil, all that wicked easy for God to save us because though we are totally depraved by nature, we've never lived out our depravity to its fullest extent like others do. Easy for God to save us compared to saving a Hindu or saving a Muslim or saving a pagan. Easy for God to save us who have lived and grown up in the church compared to God saving the drunks and the fornicators and the blasphemers who have never cast a shadow upon the door of a church. And so it shouldn't take much effort on God's part to save us. A snap of the fingers and it's done. That's what we're inclined to think, but the text says otherwise. The word of God says, yes, the righteous are saved, all right, but with great difficulty, with great effort, with great work on the part of God. It is not in any sense of the word 
and easy work. Why is that? Well, that's not because God is weak and powerless. That's not because God is dependent on us for our salvation. But it is a difficult work and a demanding work for God because of who and what we are. It's a difficult work because of what God is working with, because of whom he is saving. When God saves you, he must save a totally depraved sinner. He must save someone who is, in the words of David in Psalm 51 verse 5, evil and born in sin. He must save someone who loves sin, not only, but one who can only sin. And a person who commits countless sins, who starts committing those sins when he or she is very young, commits those sins his or her whole lifetime, and whose sins are terrible sins, sins committed against a holy God, and one who does awful things to others. That's whom God is saving. And a mighty work of God is needed to save us from the wrath that our sins deserve. God cannot simply ignore our sins, not even one of them. Every sin must be punished, and not simply with a slap of the hand, but with the eternal punishment of hell that sins deserve. But even more than that, when God saves you and me, he saves those who don't want to be saved. There is no one who wants to be saved by nature. If God comes to us to save us, we say to him, leave me alone, God. I don't want to be saved from my sin. Leave me alone. I love my sin. Leave me alone. I want to continue in sin. It's like a person floating in a river. Floating in this river heading toward a waterfall that drops a couple of hundred feet and he will go over the edge of that waterfall and be smashed to his death at the bottom of that waterfall. And he's swimming in that river, which is a river of sewage. That's really what it is. And he doesn't have a care in the world. He's enjoying it. And someone, as it were, says, here, let me help you. Let me save you. And he says, no, leave me alone. 
I'm enjoying this. Don't rescue me from this river. Don't rescue me from certain death. It takes a mighty work of God to change that attitude that we have by nature. It takes a mighty work of God to change you and me, a mighty work of God to change our hearts, to regenerate us. Our hearts described elsewhere in Scripture as being, or regeneration described as being a heart transplant. And that's no minor thing. It takes a mighty work of God to sanctify us throughout our lifetime. It takes a mighty work of God to preserve and keep us in our salvation. It takes a mighty work of God to glorify us at the end of our earthly pilgrimage. It takes a mighty work of God to deliver us from the power of sin and the shame of sin and the guilt of sin and the control of sin. It takes a mighty work of God to make us into saints, holy people of God, to change us from hatred to love, to change us from being proud to being humble people of God, to change us from hatred to love, to change us from being spiritually ugly to being spiritually glorious and beautiful with the beauty of Christ. It takes a mighty work of God to save you and me. You and I, as we are by nature, sinners are like a vehicle that has been in a terrible car wreck. Perhaps a small car sandwiched between two trucks. A serious accident, not just a car now that has a few dents, not simply a car that you could fix up in a little bit, but a car that has been totally ruined, every part wrecked in that vehicle beyond recognition to the point that you would say about that car, if it was your car, it's not worth keeping. It's not worth trying to fix it. Throw it away, buy a new one. And that's how we are spiritually. Not merely a few spiritual dents and a few spiritual scratches, not merely a few minor problems that can easily be fixed up, remedied, but spiritually we are completely smashed inside and out. Nothing good left. And you might say it would be easier for God to create a new person than for God to take one who is a totally depraved sinner and renew that person to be what he was originally when God created man and man was good and perfect in the eyes of God. 
But God doesn't do that. Instead, God saves, he changes, he transforms, he renews you and me. And that takes a supernatural work. That's a work that no man can ever do. Only God can do it. It's not an easy thing. It's not a simple thing for God to save anyone. And beloved, what proves beyond all doubt that our salvation is a difficult work is what God had to do in order to accomplish that salvation. That is, what God had to do at the cross. He had to give his own son. That was the price that God had to pay for our salvation. His own only begotten and beloved son. And consider what God had to do to his son. He had to hang his son on the cross. He had to punish his son with the eternal wrath that our sins deserve. And not just the sins of one, but the sins of the great innumerable multitude of all of the elect of God. God's son punished for all those sins. He had to curse his own son. He had to forsake his own son. Do you think that was easy for God to do? The Bible gives us an earthly picture of how difficult that was for God. The Bible gives us that picture of how difficult that was for God by giving to us the account of Abraham offering up his son Isaac, God told him, take your son, your only son, take him to Mount Moriah and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. Take wood, take coals, and kill your son. And so Abraham journeyed for three days with his son Isaac, his beloved son, a son he had waited many, many years to get from God. And then he had to tie him to an altar. And then he had to take a knife and he had to be ready to kill his own son. Can you imagine the pain in his heart as he anticipated doing that? That's only an earthly picture of what God had to do to his beloved son who had done no wrong, in whom he was well pleased. And he did it. He did it. What a difficult work. And what a price God himself had to pay to save you and me. 
because, beloved, it is such a difficult work for God to save us, and the text has in view here especially the work of sanctification, for God to change us, for God to repair and to renew, to sanctify and to preserve us in our salvation, the text says God must use judgments on his people. The time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. Judgment must come upon the people of God. The judgments that the text speaks of there refer to the many troubles that God sends upon his people in this world. It includes the persecution that the context refers to, but as verse 19 indicates, it also refers to all of the afflictions and troubles of this life. God sends those judgments upon his people. He sends war, he sends earthquakes, he sends famine, he sends drought, he sends floods, he sends sickness, he sends pain, he sends disease, he sends loneliness, he sends death and loss and failure. All the afflictions and all the troubles of this life, the text says, the time is come that those judgments must be begin at the house of God. Those judgments must come upon the people of God. It is true those judgments come upon all men. No one is exempted. The ungodly receive those judgments of God too. And they receive them as the text says because they deserve them on account of the fact as verse 17 states that they obey not the gospel of God. God brings judgments upon them for that. They get judged by God already in this life because they don't obey the gospel of God. They don't obey the command of the gospel to repent of their sins and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God brings judgments upon them that are punishments for their sin. All the sufferings of this life are punishments for them. But the righteous also suffer those judgments of God. The righteous also suffer afflictions in this life from the hand of God. And we may ask, why? Why do the righteous suffer? Why do the people of God suffer sickness? Why do saints lose all of their earthly possessions? Why do believers experience loss? and have lives that are filled with distress and trouble. Why? Because of sin. As sinners, we deserve the judgments of God. No one can say we shouldn't suffer. But all of us, by God's grace, confess what Job said to his wife when she came to him and said, curse God and die. And his response was, what? Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord? And shall we not also receive evil 
suffering, affliction, loss, pain. We're sinners. But the point of the text is not so much to point out that we deserve these sufferings, but that we need the that we need the we need them for our salvation. We need them as part of God's work of sanctifying and um, purifying and preserving us in our salvation. We are so foolish, so blind, and so stubborn at times in pursuing the ways of sin in our lives, so opposed to turning from our sinful ways, that gentle persuasion won't do it. We don't listen to, we don't hear, we don't follow, we don't obey the word of God that we hear. And so God often needs to use harsh judgments upon us. And so the child of God suffers. God's heavy hand comes upon us. A heavy hand to wake us up spiritually. Repeated afflictions to keep us focused on God and focused upon Christ and focused upon glory. Severe judgments throughout our lifetime to keep us on the narrow way that leads to life eternal. And the text makes clear we can expect this. We're going to receive these judgments of God. The scripture says that elsewhere as well. Isaiah 1 verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed through judgment. And Acts 14 verse 22 we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. The experience, therefore, of the child of God in this world whom God is sanctifying and purifying, shaping for his or her unique place in heaven The experience of that child of God is often a lot of trouble and a lot of sorrow and a lot of affliction. Personal suffering, disease and sickness, pain, troubles within our families, the death of a loved one, and affected too by the judgments God brings upon this world, the catastrophic events in the world's history or in creation itself. Everything sent by God, judgments for us as the people of God that are not punishments for sin, but chastisements from the hand of God, sent by God not to destroy you and me, 
not to destroy our faith, but to sanctify and to purify and to strengthen and to preserve and to shape us for our place in glory. Those judgments are necessary. And they're never pleasant. They're not. The Lord has not told us it's going to be easy for you in this world. But you will suffer. You will. And sometimes the suffering is so harsh, the child of God wonders if he or she will survive that suffering. Affliction upon affliction, burden upon burden, sorrow after sorrow in one's life. The child of God cries out, how can I possibly endure all of this? How can I possibly survive this? But God is at work through it all. And God accomplishes great things through it all. And we know that from experience too. The more you suffer, the more fully you depend on God and upon God alone. The more you turn to Him. The more you trust in Him, realizing the help of men is vain in comparison. And the more you suffer, the more you also forsake the world and the pursuit of the things of this world. Because they cannot give comfort when you're sick. They cannot alleviate the pain. They cannot give you peace in the midst of affliction. And the more you suffer, the more you realize that this world is not your home. Not your home. And you don't want it to be. You long for the glory that God is preparing you for even through suffering. The judgments of God, the believer is brought to confess by the grace of God are good for me, good for me. David said that in Psalm 119, before I was afflicted I strayed. And then he says, affliction has been for my profit. Likewise, Job who confessed, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. That's what God is doing causing us to shine more and more with the beauty of the grace of God that is given us in Jesus Christ, more and more reflecting that golden beauty of the Son of God himself using suffering to make that a reality. And the question in our minds 
therefore ought not to be why do I face so much suffering? But even this, why not more? Not only because we deserve more, no one deserves less, but also because affliction is good for my soul. Affliction by the mighty hand and power of God for our profit. And the outcome of God's work through the use of judgments, through the use even of suffering, is the certain salvation of the people of God. I remind you again, beloved, the text is not wanting us to think that the salvation of the people of God is something that's doubtful, that it might not happen. That's not the point. The point is that the salvation of God's people is sure, and we can say that the salvation of God's people is sure for many reasons. One reason why the salvation of God's people is sure is because it is the work of God from beginning to end. Another reason the salvation of God's people is sure, your salvation and mine is sure, is because of God's election of us from eternity, a decree of God that never changes. Another reason why our salvation is sure as the people of God is because of the work of Christ on the cross, a finished work that has paid for every sin of every child of God. And if there is a child of God who after Christ has paid for his sins by his death on the cross that is not saved, then none of God's children would be saved because then that death of Christ accomplished nothing. But the reality is it accomplished everything for us. Our salvation is sure because of that. And our salvation is sure, too, because God is, as verse 19, the verse after our text says, a faithful creator. As the creator, he is the almighty God. He speaks the word, and it comes to pass. But he is a faithful creator, a faithful God to his people. Having promised to save them, he is true to his word, and not one will go lost, not one. But in addition to all of that, our salvation is certain because of what our text itself mentions, namely that God sends and God uses afflictions, judgments, for our good using them to sanctify and using them to preserve us in our salvation, using them to direct our focus back to God again, away from the things of this world and of this life, using them to shape us as his people for our unique places in the glories of heaven. He knows what you and I need. He knows what every one of his children needs. And he sovereignly sends it 
And with that all under the sovereign control of God, the salvation of every elect is guaranteed. I suppose we could say that it's true that God could save us in the same way that God created the world. He could just speak the word and we would be saved and we would be in heaven. But you think of that, beloved, would we then, if God did it that way, would we then experience the measure of spiritual growth that God gives to us by means of affliction? We wouldn't. Would we then, if God saved us in that way, would we then grow in our longing for deliverance from this valley of tears? We wouldn't. Would we then appreciate the cross and the grace of God to us in the cross of Christ, the death of the Son of God as the payment for all our sins, a cross that removes the sting of afflictions because our sins have already been punished? God is not punishing us. We wouldn't. Would we appreciate what it cost God to save us? Giving his own son. Causing his son to suffer in our place instead of us. Suffering the wrath of God. Crying out from the depths of hell, my God, my God, why Hast thou forsaken me, thy son? Would we appreciate that? We wouldn't. And would we appreciate the fact that that work of Christ has turned our sufferings from being punishment for sin, because that's what we deserve, but the death of Christ has turned it from that into those sufferings and afflictions serving as blessings for us. You see, God has wisely ordained the way of our salvation, a way that leads to these spiritual benefits that he works within us. And so yes, our salvation is certain, is certain. And that includes what the text mentions, or at least refers to with regards to the ungodly, but by implication to us, that includes the fact that God has a glorious end for us. The text mentions that there is an end for the wicked. What shall the end be for them that obey not the gospel of God? Well, we know what the end will be for them. 
The word of God makes clear what the end will be for the ungodly, and it will be terrible. Unimaginable torments for them forever and forever. The ungodly may think to themselves now in this life that, well, we've got it bad here. Things couldn't be worse for us. But when God brings about final judgment for them, then it will be terrible indeed. But implied in that, beloved, is that there is an end for us too. But the end for us is not the same as the end for the ungodly. We may have heavy judgments now, chastisements upon us now, but we will not face that end that the ungodly will face. Our end stands in sharp contrast to that. It's being spared from the eternal torments of hell and positively being brought into the glories of heaven. The end of earthly life for the child of God means an end of the judgment of affliction and suffering. The end of life for the child of God means the end of sin and temptation and all the effects of sin. And the end of earthly life for the child of God means positively eternal glory, a crown of life that will never fade away. And so may we in all of our afflictions ponder that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, a glorious and a wonderful end is coming for us. And now God is preparing us for it through affliction and through suffering. And we might not see right now or understand right now how a particular suffering is preparing us for that. But when we get to heaven, we will. And then the child of God will say in heaven, it had to be that way. It had to be that way. It was necessary. God's way was difficult for me, but it was a perfect way. A perfect way to refine and purify and shape me for my place in glory. My place in the body of Christ. My place in heaven where I will forever praise God for what he did in bringing me here, even using suffering to prepare me for this and to bring me here ready to glorify him forever and forever. We will fully understand and we will fully comprehend that perfect way of God when we get to heaven. May God in the meantime give us the patience to endure knowing he is doing his perfect work even through suffering. Amen. Lord our God, we thank thee for thy word. May thy spirit apply it to us May we be assured that 
thou art at work in all things, even through the judgments that thou dost bring upon us as chastisement and as thy perfect way of preparing us for glory with thee. We submit ourselves to thee. We live with faith and trust in thy sovereign will and in Christ to whom we belong and because of whom we have comfort in life and in death, in time and to all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.